0: New and powerful technique that will transform science, medicine and perhaps the human race and the whole planet.
1: This is the gene editing technology known by the acronym CRISPR. You go, you cut out the bad things, you replace them with good things,
2: and we're all happy. It's- that's what this technology is, is CRISPR technology, it allows you to cut bad parts out of genes and replace them with good ones, and that's great for diseases. We
1: invented a new
0: technology for editing genomes. It's called CRISPR-Cas9. The CRISPR technology allows scientists to make changes to the DNA in cells that could allow us to cure genetic disease. Hi, I'm Scott Lafie for N equals one, a podcast about science and discovery at UC San Diego.
2: And I'm Heather Bushman.
0: In each episode, we bring to you a story of one project, one discovery, or one scientist. Today on N equals 1, we're talking about editing genes with a hot new technique known as CRISPR-Cas9. Heather, my first question. CRISPR, what happened to the E? What does it mean?
2: (laughs) I know, I know. It's a long, crazy name. But CRISPR is actually an acronym. It stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. And that just actually refers to you know, what the genome looked like in the bacteria when they first discovered it. So, just go with CRISPR for now.
0: So, we hear a lot about CRISPR-Cas9. It's in the news. It's even been on a uh, mentioned in X-Files. What is it exactly, Heather?
2: Well, it's this hot new thing that scientists are kind of tripping all over themselves about recently uh, because it can be used in so many different fields. So what it is, is a way that scientists can very easily introduce just a few molecules into a cell and very specifically edit genes of interest. So I went and talked to John Steele.
1: I'm John Steele. I'm a fifth year postdoctoral fellow in Larry Goldstein's lab at the Sanford Consortium for Regenerative Medicine at UC San Diego.
2: John is one of these very excited researchers because he and his lab have immediately seen what the CRISPR-Cas9 system can bring to their studies. So let me back up for a second. It's new in that scientists are just applying this to all kinds of new applications and to study different cellular behaviors and um, look for treatments for new diseases but bacteria have actually been using it for a long, long time. I'll let John explain.
1: The CRISPR-Cas9 system was originally discovered in the 1980s, but it took a long time to understand what it truly was doing. It was discovered as a form of immunity in bacteria and and other microorganisms, uh, where essentially these bacteria will chop up a virus that infects them and integrate it into their own genome behind these repeats, these sort of clustered repeats of, of DNA, and then package those into RNA guides that allow the Cas9 enzyme to find and bind to foreign DNA and degrade it. Um, so in the case of viruses infecting a cell, viruses find a way to insert their DNA into, into a cell and replicate themselves that way. This is a way for a very simple cell like a bacteria to fight off those viruses.
0: So the bacteria have been using it a long time, for millennia. How is this old bit of nature revolutionizing biomedical research?
2: Right, so bacteria use CRISPR-Cas9 to chop up viral DNA and get rid of viruses. In the lab, researchers are using it to introduce into mammalian cells, like human cells, and change the DNA. And so that means changing the code for various proteins in the cell. The most basic kind of example, to try to understand this, is in rare diseases where um, someone has inherited a single defect in a gene. So here's what John says.
1: You could imagine in the case of a childhood neurodegenerative disease that we study, Neiman-Pick disease, it's a disease that typically affects children in their first decade of life. Typically, children will die by the time that they're 10. They develop neurodegenerative disease that looks pretty similar to Alzheimer's disease, just very rapidly. And it's caused by mutations in a single gene. In, in this case, niemann pick disease type C1 is caused by mutations in the NPC1 gene that if you had a patient line with a specific mutation in that sequence that caused the disease we can now program these CRISPRs and target them along with the cas9 to that specific gene that specific mutation in the gene and change it back to the wild type sequence this all sounds really
0: complex how does it work exactly
2: It is complex, but in a nutshell, the way I think about it is you've got these molecules that you put on a cell, they go inside the cell, and essentially a little piece of guide RNA. RNA is kind of similar to DNA, it's genetic material, and it goes and binds the complementary strand of DNA, whatever piece you're interested in. So you would make the sequence of your guide RNA match up to or complementary to your target gene to that dna so then when the rna gets in there it immediately goes and pairs up with that target dna the gene of interest and then the cas9 is coming along
1: so the cas9 enzyme binds to this rna guide uh, which has found its target on the dna and will essentially act like a pair of scissors binding to the DNA and then cutting it through both strands.
2: And then cells, just on their own, will try to repair that because broken DNA is a bad thing and cells see it as a danger and immediately want to fix it. But they tend to fix it not very well, so imprecisely fix that gene. And then it's now a repaired strand of DNA, but the sequence isn't quite correct. So now you have essentially inactivated that gene. So that's one strategy if you just want to turn that gene off. The other strategy is to introduce a different or healthier version of that gene.
0: Okay, I can see how the CRISPR-Cas9 system might make a good tool, but can you give me an example, Heather? How are John and the Goldstein Lab using CRISPR-Cas9?
2: Their lab actually brings together several hot, newer technologies to bear on Alzheimer's disease research?
1: So the work that we do in our lab is primarily focused on understanding how neurons die in the case of neurodegenerative disease. In this case, we typically study, as our primary disease, Alzheimer's disease. Pretty much everyone knows somebody in their family or immediate circle who has or had Alzheimer's disease. I have at least one grandparent who died of Alzheimer's disease. My wife's family has at least one grandparent who died of Alzheimer's disease, as well as several others who are affected by it. It's a pretty devastating disease, but it's a disease that a lot of people have seen with their own eyes. We are trying to understand how this disease happens at its earliest point. And to do that, we need to be able to look at how certain genes function in human neurons.
2: And so that's CRISPR-Cas9 for editing genes. They're also doing that in a special type of stem cells called induced pluripotent stem cells.
0: What are induced pluripotent stem cells?
2: So IPS cells are not embryonic stem cells and they're not just native adult stem cells in your body. Instead, there's something created in the lab and they do this in a really cool way. They can start with any cell type, so say a skin sample from a healthy person or a person with Alzheimer's disease. Start with this this skin cell, add a few different molecules that tell the skin cell to kind of dial itself back, developmentally speaking, until it becomes embryonic stem cell-like. And what that means is it's no longer defined as a skin cell, it's now a type of cell that is pluripotent meaning it can develop into any other kind of cell. So they can use a skin cell, dial it back into an IPS cell, and then tell it to drive forward and become some other type of cell, like a brain cell, like a neuron if they want to study Alzheimer's or study other diseases that affect the brain. So they have this personalized disease in a dish that they can study.
0: And so would one idea be that you have these IPSCs you've reduced them back to their stem cell-like nature, and then you go in there with CRISPR-Cas9 and you're basically monkeying around with that elemental structure fixing something or changing the nature of that stem cell so that when it develops forward again it's different than it would have been before.
2: Yeah so that could be one type of application. So the very in step one they just kind of want to better understand how does Alzheimer's disease develop and there are many different ways there are different forms of Alzheimer's.
1: So we have a series of skin biopsies that were collected from people with a familial form of Alzheimer's disease. So in this case, it's a little different from what your 85-year-old grandmother might have. These patients tend to get the disease anytime between 30 and 65 years of age. They inherit it from their family and the heritability is very, very clear. But they, and they will have a mutation in any of four different genes. And those mutations we know cause the disease, we just don't really understand how it causes the disease and what happens to the cells. So we, we use CRISPR-based genome editing in order to introduce those mutations into the genome of somebody who aged successfully without developing Alzheimer's disease. So this would be a control line. Or we'll go into one of these hereditary forms of the disease and correct their disease-causing mutation and show that that mutation really did cause the phenotypes that we were looking at.
0: And as I had mentioned earlier, you know, it's in the news a lot. People are whispering about some future Nobel laureate winning work, but we're obviously not all the way there. What are the biggest challenges?
2: A couple of things. One, the technology is changing so fast. So it was only a few years ago that scientists realized that we could apply this to mammalian cells.
1: From From a personal note, the field is moving so quickly that often by the time we're ready to publish a paper, showing how we employed some of these tools. The tools have changed so much that what we did was almost irrelevant. What took you two years, now maybe you could do in six months.
2: And another challenge is the ethical concerns. Like all new technologies, there's sort of a reluctance, a a fear. In this case, there's probably a lot of um, reason for that and people are discussing this issue a lot, and what, what can we do? What should we do? How should it be regulated?
1: From my perspective, in terms of translating these tools into the clinical space and using them to do these, these types of things that, that we just talked about, for example, correcting mutations in an embryo before it's used for IVF, securing the regulatory environment, and having in-depth ethical conversations and moral conversations as a community... Is probably a major hurdle and I think we have done a good job of addressing this but it should be a priority.
2: A third challenge to advancing CRISPR-Cas9 as a potential future therapeutic is knowing for sure that you're only hitting the specific genes you're aiming for.
1: There are still a lot more questions that we haven't answered yet about how specific these genome editing systems are for the one gene that you're trying to target. And we're getting better at making new second and third and fourth generation versions of these genome editing systems that are really, really specific to their target and have very, very few off-target effects. But until we've done the appropriate studies to show that there are no off-target effects, you can't know for sure that you're not, say, correcting a mutation that would cure Neiman-Pick disease say in an embryo while at the same time introducing a mutation that might cause cancer. That we just don't know yet.
0: Given all the excitement, I mean it, it sounds like this is something that is completely novel and original and never seen before. Was there nothing before this that served the same kind of purpose?
2: There were a few techniques that scientists could use before CRISPR-Cas9 if they wanted to tinker with genes in a cell or in an organism, but it wasn't easy by any means.
1: Before the CRISPR-Cas9 system was discovered and developed into a tool for genome editing, we had other forms of genome genome editing called talons or zinc fingers. And talons and zinc fingers, because they are proteins that bind to the DNA and then recruit an enzyme to break it. They are a little more challenging to design in your standard lab. They require a lot of bioinformatic capacity and understanding of how they work. There are licenses that you have to buy in order to use them and develop them. They cost a lot of money in order to develop and the turnaround time is a a bit lower.
2: Now CRISPR-Cas9 is cheap, it's easy to do. John told me that he he can teach, you know, a first year undergraduate student to use this within their first week in the lab. It doesn't really take a whole lot of expertise. Uh, It works quickly, it's cheap, which means they can try it on all kinds of things. They uh, They can use trial and error and see what's interesting and they're not really so concerned with conserving resources
1: If you have to spend months waiting for something that's being made by another company to arrive and you spent $10,000 on it, you hope that it works for what you want, but it might not. And then you spend time finding out that it didn't and then you have to start all over again. Here, if we design these in-house, we can design two, three, four different guides to a specific area, order all of the things we need, for really under $100 and have them ready to go into cells within a week. And that, that's truly amazing. That really speeds up the pace of research.
0: Wow, this all really sounds exciting, and it sounds like there's, this is a tool that addresses a lot of different needs, a lot of different diseases and questions, and it'll be really fascinating to watch the science develop and to, and to see applications down the line, and I think we're on the, sounds like we're on the cusp of a, a new era in biomedicine.
2: We really are.
0: Thanks, Heather.